Well, amen. And good morning. We are grateful for God's unexplainable, unconditional love. We need that love. We need to feel the tangible, tangible benefits and expressions of that love, especially when our hearts are heavy. Thank you again for allowing me the opportunity to be here. My name is Dennis Edwards. If we haven't met, I give you greetings. Along with my wife, Susan Edwards, we've been delighted to share with you these times of worship and fellowship that we've had. Let's stay in our spirit of worship and go before the Lord together in prayer yet again. Lord, we give you thanks for that love that we just sang about. Yet we come, Lord God, with hearts that are heavy because of realities in our world, in our personal lives. Just all around us, we are reminded of why we need you, why we need salvation, why we need Jesus, because our world can be such a mess, a painful, frightening mess. Lord, help us not to uh, grow weary in doing well. Help us, Lord, not to give up, but to wait, like the psalmist said and we heard this morning, to wait, to see your goodness in the land of the living and Lord, I pray now that you would help me to communicate faithfully your holy word in a way that would um, speak to where we are today, encourage us, stimulate us, even challenge if you so see fit. Lord, I pray that you would use me and my own idiosyncrasies, the things that are odd about me would not be distractions, that somehow your spirit would just use uh, this vessel Guide us, O thou great Jehovah. We're pilgrims in this barren land. We are weak, but you're mighty. Hold us with your powerful hand and bread of heaven. Bread of heaven, feed us till we want no more. Amen. So the Russian invasion of Ukraine is more than unsettling, surely a cause of worry. The way the COVID virus morphed and seemed to work harder to get humans sick is frightening. So I'm not excited about taking my mask off, even though masks can be inconvenient and annoying. I don't want to trigger anyone by listing all the things that can cause us grief. I don't know if it's nurture or nature, but I can be a worrier and I have no problem imagining the worst case scenario in a given situation. I was in a car once as a kid, and I said out loud, what if we had an accident? And my father was at Dennis. Just, just stop. <laughs> and those glass half full types of people, they might call me a pessimist, but honestly, people like me are realists. See, we, oh, y'all laughing. <laughs> but we know that things don't always work out the way that we hope. We know that sometimes you wake up and you find out you're not in Kansas anymore. And before you give me a lecture about faith, let me tell you that we realists know about faith more than those optimists. Optimists naturally think things are going to work out. They don't really have to exercise faith. Life for them is hakuna matata. 
no worries. They have their problem-free philosophy. You don't need faith when you think things are going to work out and that there's really no problem. But we realists are like those Apollo 13 astronauts. Houston, we have a problem. That's what a realist says. But realists with faith keep on flying, and we trust that those engineering nerds will find a solution. <laughs> Worrying is one of the things that the Apostle Paul addresses as we come close to the end of this letter to the Philippian community. And I remind you, he's not offering theoretical notions from a luxury villa overlooking the Mediterranean. He's not pontificating from a palace. Paul is not counseling from a comfortable couch in a corner office. The apostle's in prison. Don't forget that. It's in the ugliness and uncertainty of Roman incarceration that this servant of God manages to encourage his dear fellow believers. Paul addresses several tensions here at the end of the letter, and worrying is a type of tension. So with his final few words, the Apostle Paul gives practical and encouraging advice on dealing with tension. He touches on at least three different iterations of tension. There's tension between people, there's internal tension, which is described as worry or anxiety, and the third type of tension relates to, well, really to managing our resources, particularly financial resources. So as we conclude our brief series here through Philippians today, I'd like for us to take a look at the entire remaining portion of chapter 4 and consider how being together in one spirit relates to the tensions that I just mentioned. I'm in Philippians 4, starting at verse 2, and I'm back to the NRSV this week. I urge Euodia and I urge Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes. And I ask you also, my loyal companion, help these women, for they have struggled beside me in the work of the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Do not worry about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, beloved, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is pleasing, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence and if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Keep on doing the things that you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, and the peace of God will be with you. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last you have received your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned for me, but had no opportunity to show it. Not that I am referring to being in need, for I have learned to be content with whatever I have. I know what it is to have little, and I know what it is to have plenty. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being well-fed and of going hungry, of having plenty and of being in need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. In any case, it was kind of you to share my distress. 
You Philippians indeed know that in the early days of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you alone. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs more than once. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the profit that accumulates to your account. I have been paid in full and have more than enough. I am fully satisfied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will fully satisfy every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The friends who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of the emperor's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. The Lord blesses the reading of his word. This is the word of the Lord. So conflict, a natural part of human existence, but we have to confront it. We have to deal with conflict, but constructively and not avoid it. Avoiding conflict will eventually cause more problems than it may appear to solve, which happens on a global scale, as we're seeing, but also within our local context. So my first point is that being together in one spirit means confronting conflicts constructively. Sometimes we confront, but we do not do it constructively. I was going to show you a clip of a movie, and then I realized that uh, it was dated. It was a movie that I saw, and then when I started thinking about way back when I saw it, I said, oh my goodness, most of these people weren't even born then. I said, so I won't show you the movie, but it made fun, that little scene I was gonna show you, not a whole movie, just a clip. It was gonna show you a little scene that made fun of New York, because we New Yorkers, and I am from New York, and no matter where I live, I'm a New Yorker, I just am a New Yorker who lives in Chicago. We New Yorkers have a reputation for being confrontational, which isn't the best way to deal with conflict, Yet, even though we New Yorkers have that reputation for being confrontational, I've also witnessed how parts of Midwestern culture, especially up in Minnesota, can avoid conflict and allow things to fester under the surface. Both, I'm just keeping it real, both extremes, rude confrontation and passive-aggressive avoidance are unhealthy. Yeah, both extremes. So here in verses 2 to 3, as Paul starts to wrap up the letter, he calls out two women who have experienced working alongside him in the propagation of the gospel. These women may have been enslaved at some point. The name Euodia, good journey, um, and the name Syntyche, which means um, uh, with luck or fortunate, were stereotypical names given to enslaved women. And I appreciate here the pastoral role that Paul plays. Earlier in chapter 2, he celebrated his co-workers, Timothy and Epaphroditus. He, he mentions Clement here, another worker. So we often think of Paul as primarily a theologian, teaching us about salvation, sanctification, Christology, eschatology, and all the fancy words that we use to describe how God seems to be working through Jesus over time. But we should not forget that Paul is also a pastor. His ministry was not about unloading theological ideas in some abstract sense. Paul was theologically astute, for sure, but his theology was communicated in the context of community. In other words, his theological teaching was meant to address the questions and concerns of people, people in church. And Paul was a realist. 
recognizing how his Roman imperial world operated, but his faith beckoned him to see Jesus at work in even the most difficult of situations. So here we are at this moment. He's very practical, and he calls out for reconciliation among these two women who are having a conflict. And these women are leaders. Yeah, women leaders in the church. And Paul knows that it's important that these sisters find common ground. So put yourself in the place of Euodia or Syntyche for a moment. Your name just got mentioned by the Apostle Paul in a public reading of a letter, and not in an entirely good way. He knew already that you weren't getting along with your sister. Your conflict had reached the pastor's ears. You've already heard him be talking about love and unity and how his bowels were aching because he loved this community so much. You heard him talk about having the same mind, about being a phalanx that's working together for the gospel, and now he gets really personal. And Paul's strategy for confronting the conflict is to plead with each of these two sisters to come to one accord. I, I, always, I often make a little side point in my uh, teaching that I like the way um, the NRSV preserved the fact that Paul pleads to each woman. Now, it's actually not there in the NIV. It says, I plead with Yodia and Syntyche. And grammatically, you don't need to say it twice, but he does say it twice. I plead with Yodia. I plead with Syntyche. And, and I think there's something to that, that he addresses each of them. He makes his appeal based on his relationship with them. He also asks someone that he calls a true companion. We don't even know this person's name, but we think it's Epaphroditus. But he says, my true companion, my true yoke fellow, help these women. And he wants this person perhaps to serve as a mediator. And even though Paul doesn't give a formula here, it's appropriate, appropriate for us to consider how we deal with conflict in our own context. And once again, I'm going to be straightforward with you. Christians can sometimes be the worst at dealing with conflict because we think being nice and avoiding it is the safer option. And also, in multi-ethnic spaces, there are unique and often unspoken tensions that can create wedges within the community. Furthermore, dynamic personalities can force the followings that are almost cultic. It's, I've seen this in multi-staff churches where people—it was almost like the Corinthians. Well, I'm of Paul. Well, I'm of Apollos. Well, I'm of Peter. If we hope to have the joyful solidarity that I mentioned when we started this series— then we have to make sure that we deal with conflict in mature, constructive ways. Can't vilify each other, can't form factions, can't just take our marbles and go elsewhere. Mature people work stuff out. You know, when I first became the pastor of the Sanctuary Covenant Church, I told you this before, I followed an amazing founding pastor, and it became evident that many people were not on the same page. Not just not with me, but not even with each other. And some had had such allegiance to Pastor Ephraim, it was hard for them to accept me. I mean, I'm a very different person. And some of y'all know if you've been in the Covenant Church for a while. But it doesn't even matter if you know. Everybody's different. <laughs> some people had tension with other leaders and would pull me aside to rat on them rather than going to them directly. Now, I'm not going to badmouth another church. It's just that along with so many of the awesome things that the sanctuary was doing, there were also tensions that did not get dealt with, at least not directly. 
And one of the first things I did was try to find a way to have more mature conversations, some community gatherings. I mean, the church had an annual meeting because by law you have to have an annual meeting and, that, and you focus on the budget and the officers and, and you do that. But the church did not have any other regular rhythm of getting together outside of the worship service. So I figured we had to find more ways to listen to each other. I'm not going to glorify my time there because I made my share of mistakes, I'm sure, and not all my ideas took off. But I do know that many people testified of an increasing sense of community and a lessening of tension over time. I, I, I want to do like Paul and urge any of you going through interpersonal conflict to believe that reconciliation is possible and necessary. You know, many churches, and we did it this morning, we have this time of greeting when the introverts cringe and we're not disappointed to be wearing a mask. I'll keep that part real too. <laughs> I turn to your neighbor, oh, <clears throat> do you know me? Do I know you? Okay, yeah, yeah. And I, let me just stay right here in this comfort zone. And then I don't have to actually shake anybody else's hand or look anybody else in the face because I know you. Or even better, my kids are here. I'll tend to them during this time because, because, you know, I know you guys, and you guys don't even worry about any of this that's going on because in a few minutes, you'll be gone, and we'll, we'll make it through this. That's, that's greeting time, and I'm keeping this real because introverts feel something, but we don't get an opportunity to say it all the time. I, I'm just telling you. But you know where this greeting came? The greeting, I mean, to be more serious about it, the, the, the time where we greet one another is really coming from the practice of passing the peace of Christ, right? Which was done before the Eucharist, before the communion. Because at that moment, when we recognize that God forgives us, we are to practice that reconciling spirit with others. Passing the peace symbolizes this power of reconciliation between one another. We don't need to agree on every point. But disagreeing while maintaining and exercising love, that is a sign of maturity. So we can find a path to harmony even when there are differences. Life together depends on believing that the Holy Spirit is a unifier. So before I leave this, this first point, I, I want to foreshadow the fact that we are planning to have communion today. So maybe today is the day for moving toward healing a tense relationship because I know the Spirit is speaking to you for what may be needed. So now, as we work our way to verse 4, it almost seems out of place as Paul once again commands his audience to rejoice. I mean, he just put two people on the spot, and then he tells everyone, rejoice! Again, rejoice! <laughs> I, I would think the command would be, all right, get to it. Repent! <laughs> I can only wonder how it felt to be sitting there, having just heard the names of two prominent people who were having a conflict, probably lots of heads drooping down, like, okay, I know what's going on, their mouths are hanging open because they didn't know what was going on, only to hear the words, rejoice! Paul apparently does not want the church to fixate there. It, it, it's got to deal with the, with, with the tension constructively, not remain there in a state of tension. But it's got to move onward, and we move deeper into experiencing the joyful solidarity in Jesus. I told you to take care of this matter. Now let's rejoice. 
And when we are joyful, other people can see that we're not caustic, vindictive, self-righteous people. True believers can forgive. True believers practice forbearance. True believers have a gentleness that is fruit born of the Holy Spirit. And gentleness is not a word that describes weakness, but a word that affirms that God is at work in us, making us more like Jesus. Amen. And with God's command for gentleness, he moves on to talk about internal peace, and that is the second point. Being together in one spirit means prayerfully practicing peace. Yeah, we know the world's in a crisis, and we, we touched on it already. I mean, war, pandemic, crime, violence, impending climate and environmental disaster, economic worries, racial injustice, patriarchy, greed. I said I didn't want to trigger anyone, but a fair question is, What might it mean to be a Christian in a world facing all these problems? What can we do? It was earlier in chapter 2, Paul said to Philippians, and we didn't spend time in this passage. It was after the, um, the hymn. He says he wants the Philippians to shine like stars among a crooked and perverse culture. And that was way back then. And I confess that it's hard to shine when you realize how crooked and perverse the world actually is. But despite the bleakness and in the midst of conflict, Paul says, rejoice, be gentle. And then there's one more thing he says, don't worry. Oh my goodness, he says it there in verse 6, don't worry about anything. Now, ideally, we want to manage our internal conflict to deal with our stress. But joy is not possible. Gentleness is not possible. Peace is not possible without God doing some kind of work in us. So therefore, Paul tells us to pray. He says, make your request to God. Ask God. And now we have a whole—I mean, we could take a whole weekend seminar or entire series of messages just on prayer. I mean, I'm not going to do that right now. But you've read Deeply Formed Life by Pastor Rich Willows. You, you've had a Pastor Romelia Williams here at the end of last year leading a retreat. And here you are in church. So I don't have to convince you that prayer is right, that prayer is important, and that prayer changes us. Some people like to say prayer changes things, but sometimes things don't change. What actually changes is us. Our wills begin to line up with God's will. Our faith grows through adversity. Our selfishness starts to go away. We stop asking with the wrong motives. And right here, Paul talks about prayer changing us, regardless of whether the circumstances change or not. Prayer is a way to God's peace. But keep in mind two things that Paul emphasizes here. One is the nearness of the Lord. He says it clearly, the Lord is near. Psalm 145, 18 might have been in his mind. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. The Lord is near. There was some silly, sappy song from decades ago that said, God is watching us from a distance. That's nonsense. The Lord is near. Amen. We can never allow ourselves to fall into the trap of thinking that God's far away, disinterested, or impotent. No, our Lord is omnipotent, ever vigilant, and nearby. Amen. He knows what we need before we ask. He knows the plight of his people. He knows our human capacity for evil and for some reason is remarkably patient with us. God is with us as we struggle through the realities of life, even through conflict, through worry, through anxiety. But in addition, 
to understanding the nearness of God, we also need to pray with this attitude of gratitude and expectation. Paul says to make our supplication with thanksgiving. We should be thankful people because it's easy to complain. I mean, it's natural to complain. God allowed his Old Testament people to cross the Red Sea on dry land, even as Pharaoh's army was in hot pursuit. But when his people uh, got over there after a while, they started to complain. God fed the freed people with what is it from heaven? You know, the word mana means what is it? They didn't know what that was. What is it? And he fed them with what is it? And they still complained. How are we doing in the complaint department? Several years ago, I found myself getting very frustrated over things in my life. And not that that happened just several years ago. I'm just saying this was a point where where I was, that I'm remembering right now. And I was confronted with this truth that I needed to first cultivate, cultivate this attitude of gratitude. So I went to the store, I bought a little notebook, and I started to write a blessing a day. Because, you know, like the old hymn says, when upon life's billows you are tempest-tossed, when you are discouraged thinking all is lost, count your many blessings, name them one by one, and it will surprise you what the Lord has done, right? So I started to write it down every day, something I was grateful for. Now, right now, I, I still do it, but I don't do it every day. But I started to learn something in the process. When I reflect on my many blessings, how can I not be grateful? I, I'm not going to pretend to say I'm cured of worrying. Like I said, I don't know if it's nurture or nature. But it sometimes hits me in waves. But my response that I've been training myself is to get better at remembering that God is near, that I can cultivate an attitude of gratitude and thanks, thankfulness. Because the reward for such a, a perspective is the peace of God. And amen, we need the peace of God. We need peace to break out. I know that the peace of God is something that's not easily understood, and it's hard to explain that you can have peace if you don't have a job, or when you lost, lost a loved one, or, or you don't know how the kids are doing, or you don't know if the country is going to be okay, or, or you've had friends move, or, or you were just told some other bad news. I mean, how can you have peace when everything seems to be falling apart? How can we have peace? I don't know. <clears throat> it's a peace that goes beyond my understanding. It's a gift from God. It's like what Jesus says, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives. So don't let your heart be troubled. Don't be afraid. Sisters and brothers, I know this is much easier said than done, but that's why I'm here today, to encourage you to let God give us peace because we can't really get it anywhere else. And part of our path to cultivating peace is having a healthier way of, of thinking. I mean, Paul sounds a little bit like a, a modern psychotherapist here, and that's good, because we all could benefit from some type of therapy. We have too many things messing with our minds, too many things competing for our attention. Not everything trying to get our attention is good for us. So consequently, we ought to think about and reflect upon what is true, honorable, just, pure, pleasing, commendable, excellent, praiseworthy. Those are some beautiful adjectives. And just to be clear, that's not just the so-called religious or moral stuff. Paul uses words that can be applied to anything beautiful like art, music, any other positive thing. One author says it this way, his language could refer to a Beethoven symphony as well as the work of Mother Teresa among the poor of Calcutta. 
The point is that we can set our mind on things that are uplifting, drawing from all sorts of arenas throughout God's creation to help us ease internal conflicts. And with not full apology to Bobby McFerrin, it's not don't worry, be happy. It's stop worrying, be prayerful. So my last point is about God's provision, especially in the area of finances. So I put it this way, being together in one spirit means embracing the secret of contentment. So as we're wrapping up here, I'm again reminding you of, the Paul, of, of Apostle Paul's situation. He went to Philippi because he saw uh, a Macedonian man in a vision calling out for help. Paul had intended with the entourage to go northward up into a, what's called Asia Minor, but he took the Macedonian call to mean that God wanted his team to make a turn and go westward to share the gospel of Jesus in the province of Macedonia. And Philippi was Paul's first stop. The new Macedonian Christians really got the message about supporting the work of ministry. The Macedonians, these Philippians in particular, understood the importance of giving their financial resources to the work of ministry. Paul, I wanted to read that whole section because I wanted you to hear the language that is commercial language. He says it over and over. He says gain, loss, benefit. He uses a lot of words that come straight out of, of, of the business world of his day. Paul's words to the Philippians teach us a few things about the blessing of giving and receiving, especially when we are prone to worry about finances. I think some Christians fear giving money for ministry because they don't know exactly how it gets used. I mean, you don't get anything like right back for you. It's like you don't put something in the offering and then you get something like right back. Very transactional. In fact, now, I mean, I, I'm old enough to remember when they started to ha- uh, churches started to have to issue those statements at the end of the year for your giving to say that you haven't received any goods or services because somebody tried to sue their church for their past ties. And so now it got to the point where we have to say, you know, or you have to, or we as a church have to say when you get your giving statement at the end of the year, because I know y'all doing your taxes now, dutiful citizens, and, uh, and you have to get this thing, <laughs> or you'll do them on April 14th, I, you know. But, um, but you get this statement that says, you know, I gave X amount and I didn't receive any, you know, words to that effect. And there's Christians that are like, what am I giving my money for? Let me see it going out of my account. And the Lord tells us through Paul and lots of other people in the scriptures that the Lord knows our situation. He sees our needs, and he commends us for having faith to give to God's work. I'm not going to shout out uh, somebody here because I know this is recorded and it goes all over the internet and stuff, but I know somebody who gives rather robustly to ministry and says, I give it as obedience to God, not because of confidence in humanity. If people mess up with my money, that's on them. (laughs) Now, he will have learned some lessons, I suspect, and maybe not do that again. But ultimately, it's out of obedience to God. And, And God commends us for having faith to give to God's work. And I'll go so far as to say that we miss out on some blessings that God has for us when we're afraid to give to the work of ministry. And I don't say that to make you guilty. I don't even have no idea if you give or how much you give, and I don't, I never need to know. I just want to tell you what the scriptures say and what's born out of experience. God will meet the needs of faithful, cheerful, generous givers. This is over and over. 
And as Paul thinks about his life, his trials as well as his triumphs, he communicates what I'm calling the secret of contentment. He says that while he appreciated the concern that the Philippians had, he wasn't worried because he had learned this secret. That that secret, which seems to escape a lot of people in our culture, is that it's not the amount of money or possessions that we have. Now, yes, it's true that money can help alleviate the pressures of life. I'm not going to lie. That's true, especially the way our society operates. But Paul says that he learned the secret of contentment knowing what it was like to have plenty and to have plenty of nothing. He learned the secret of being well-fed and also gone hungry. He learned the secret of contentment involved appreciating what he had and knowing that the Lord is in control. And for many church people, the main measure of success is money and possessions. And our fascination with money has us thinking that if, that if something is big and bright, it must have God's hand of blessing on it. This is not how the Lord operates. Paul knows that. And some things that are big can still be unhealthy. I mean, back in the 1980s, we saw big ministries crash. And of course, some large ministries did well. But the point is that buildings, bucks, and bodies aren't the critical indicators of success. And even though many evangelicals particularly witnessed the crashing and burning of some big ministries back in the 80s, it happened again in recent years. We tend to be so impressed with money and numbers that we can miss what is happening under the surface, but it's what's under the surface that the Lord cares about. More than smoke machines, more than big budgets, more than eloquent preachers who can fit into skinny jeans. How about that? <clears throat> I got nothing to lose, <laughs> I'll tell you. <laughs> I paid an awful lot of dues over the years, so I'm just going to tell you what it is. <laughs> For Paul, ministry meant sharing his very life with those he served. Paul said in another place that he didn't want to be a burden to any church. He said that, I didn't want to be a burden to you. So he would rather pay his own way than and working with leather and making tents. For Paul, trusting the Lord was no cliche. It was a reality forged in this crucible of life in a powerful empire. Paul learned that the Lord Jesus was in control of his life and everything that needed to be done would get done because the Lord provided the strength. I can do all that I need to do through the Lord's power, he says. That's what verse 13 means. Doesn't mean I can jump off a building and not hurt myself. I can do anything. No, I can do all that needs to get done. We are meant to be together as God's people, united in Jesus Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit. We can live the lessons the Philippians received and be a church that knows that when he gives, it gains. A church that knows that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. A church that knows not to consider just individual interests but look to the interests of others. A church that knows to have the same attitude of Jesus who did not exploit his identity as God but took on the form of a servant. A church that knows that it must work side by side fighting for the gospel and not fighting each other. A church that knows it should not be afraid making decisions based on fear or doubt, but a church knows that God is in control. A church that works out its salvation with fear and trembling. A church that knows the truth, knows Christ, wants to know him more. A church that knows where it's going because its citizenship is in heaven. Don't you want to be a part of that? A church that has joy, not because things go well all the time, but because it knows that God is working all things together for good. Don't you want to be a part of that? I hope that God has renewed a sense of mission as we spent time in this letter to the Philippians. Because as God's people in this world, and at times ugly, messed up, hurtful world, 
Many people are looking for something, someone that's not that, that truly can experience joy and solidarity and it be real. As we approach the Lord's table, it's a great time for us to celebrate what the Lord has done and what the Lord will continue to do through NUCOM. This is a great time to renew your commitment to moving in a unified direction as you discern God's will together. We're coming to the Lord's table right now. It's the, the beauty of this time, even though we have our modern way of doing things and we're careful about um, passing on disease. So you will have an individual cup that when you're ready, you'll come up and get, which has a, a small wafer, and you'll take it back to your seat and consume it there. So even though we logistically do things different from our forebears from that night with Jesus, it's in the same spirit that we come. It's in the same spirit of, of expectation. It's in the same spirit of a Lord who is giving himself on behalf of not just the others around that table, but all humanity. A Savior who showed love, not just by saying it, but by laying down his life. Sisters and brothers, let's take a moment to pray as we prepare to come to the Lord's table. Think about heavy things that are in your heart or the things that bring that tension or the worry. And also think that, oh, God is saying we can still rejoice. We can still set our mind on other things as we deliver those things to him in prayer. As we deliver our concerns to him, we can embrace what's true and honorable and lovely and praiseworthy. Lord, I thank you for this time that we have together. We come, Lord God, as modern-day disciples following in the feet of many disciples millennia before us, people who walked with Jesus, walked with the followers of Jesus, learned from the disciples, learned from those disciples, and realized that there is life, real life, in giving ourselves over to the Lord Jesus. I pray, Lord God, right now, whatever is on our hearts, whatever might be concerning us, that we would give it to you. We would do like Paul says. We could, we could ask in prayer, giving you our anxieties. As Peter would say, we can cast our cares on you because you care for us. And Lord, as we cast these cares to you, we ask that you fill our minds with those things that are lovely and true and excellent and praiseworthy, and we would allow ourselves to savor those good things. And Lord, perhaps even as we take the cup today, and we, 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 we won't hastily uh, throw back the juice, we would, we would savor it a moment, appreciate the taste, and think, Lord, you are good. That Actually, we want to taste and see that you are good. 
We want our moment here to not just be a moment. We want it to be a, a, a part of something bigger. The work you're doing in this world through your people. Visit us, we pray, by the power of your spirit. We ask these things in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. Sisters and brothers, on the night our Lord Jesus was betrayed, when he gave thanks, he took bread and he broke it. He said, take and eat. This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And on that same night, he took the cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. All of you drink it. The Apostle Paul adds, as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim our Lord's death till he comes. Sisters and brothers, we come reflectively, but also with joy that the Lord is present with us. So come and dine at the master's table.